Hello and welcome to the BC Outdoors podcast. Sit back and join us as your host, Mike Mitchell, gets us all access to the leaders in the outdoor scene. Welcome everybody to another installment of BC Outdoors podcast. Uh, special guest, um, Mike Kelly from Codfathers, uh, also BC Outdoors writer uh, and a member, the main board member of the SFAB. Mike, uh, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? Uh, good, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, fishing's been pretty good so far this year. Feeling pretty uh, pretty good about the way the season's looking. So nice. Yeah, I heard that. Uh, heard there's some good fish coming up coming out uh, up and down the coast, uh, just north of you. Sounds like Rivers Inlet's producing. You and I were talking a little bit, and Port Hardy's producing as well too. So that's a great sign for this early season, right? Oh yeah, you bet, buddy. Um, you know, it, it seems seems like the fish are a little bigger this year than we've seen in the past. I mean, the size grade, is, you know, seems pretty good. And, um, you know, we saw an angler bring a 45-pounder across the docks the other day. And, I mean, this is June wow. still. So, um, yeah. we've seen lots of fish in the high teens and mid-20s. So, uh, I think it's a good sign of things to come and the way it's uh, way the season's going to roll. So. You know, speaking of, uh, speaking of fish stories, Mike, uh, it sounds, you know, you and I were talking a little bit off air, and I talked to Kyle Bryan from... Uh, Norm market. It sounds like you guys have a, a little bit of a, a fish story. The decent sized halibut caught on some uh, Rapala stuff, eh? Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was kind of a first for me. You know, um, we were out looking for lingcod and other bottom fish, and we're trolling in about ninety feet of water. And I was using basically salmon gear, thirty pound Suffolk line, and and uh, so we're trolling around, and I, I put down a, um, a, a Rapala X Rap thirty. And I was basically just trolling it over the bottom, looking for lingcod, and I thought, you know, try something different, try something new. And you know, of course, as a member of the Rapala Pro staff, that's one of our jobs is to, you know, not only test new gear, but to try to find ways that, you know, some of our older gear that we've had for a long time, you know, can be effective in different fisheries and whatnot. So, so like I said, mm-hmm. uh, we we're trolling this X Rap just off the bottom, and. I noticed uh, it looked like I had a small bite and nothing really came of it. And I went for about another minute, and, and so I thought I better check it, thinking maybe I was, you know, dragging small rockfish around. And so I brought the downrigger up and you know kept it all attached. And when I got up to about 50 feet, all of a sudden the rod just doubled over and started peeling out line. And uh, at first I thought maybe it was a massive chinook. And uh, well, you know, 40 minutes later into a fight, I knew it was a big halibut. Couldn't be anything but. And we finally got it up to the boat, and um, it was, we figure, somewhere between 170, maybe a little bit over 200 pounds, a real big female, an absolute beautiful, beautiful fish. And uh, and uh, we got it up to the surface, and it took off again, got it back up, took off again. And finally, we got it up and admired it for a minute or two, and uh, were able to pull the hooks out of its mouth. Of course, we were fishing with barbless hooks and uh, and watched her swim away to, you know, breed again. And uh provide us with some baby halibut for next season so uh so yeah it was really neat though and it was the first large halibut like that i'd ever caught on a rapala plug but it just goes to show you you know if you you don't know if it'll if it'll work if you don't try and uh that was a lot of fun so now i've got a new standby lure for my for my lingcod fish nice nice and uh, how how old do you think that halibut was mike you know, I would think probably, oh, maybe 30, 40, 50 years, something like that. And uh, wow. you know, once you get over about 70 pounds with halibut, the majority of them are female. And, um, you know, of course, with our regulations nowadays, you know, having to release fish over 115 centimeters this year, you know, as from the conservation side of things, I think the recreational uh, 
fishery or you know recreational anglers for that matter have really stepped up to the plate and, and are really leading the charge in terms of conservation and doing the right thing for you know the next generation of, of anglers but also for the stocks and uh, you know to yeah. help help the halibut stocks along and so I think you know again con- you know from a conservation side of things um, marine recreational anglers are absolutely leading the way and uh, mm-hmm. that's a good thing you know it's, it's really I you know I really enjoy catching those big fish you know we're, we're very fortunate to live in a place where we do encounter big halibut like that and and I think I enjoy watching them swim away unharmed um, you know, from an encounter just as much as you would, you know, taking one home for the freezer. So it was pretty exciting. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, so like how many years, you know, thinking back here, I don't know off the top of my head, but how many years has it been since we've had, you know, the slot size limit, uh, for halibut? And, and I know that it, it, it seems to change every other year or something. We get, uh, different, different skis, but really when it first came down, how long ago was that now? Well, that's a good question, Mike. You know, I think if my memory serves me correctly, it was probably eight or nine years ago that we, mm-hmm. we, you know, we first saw slot limits, you know, introduced as a management tool within the, you know, BC halibut fishery, and uh, and it's it's sort of a deep conversation. In fact, it, you know, it seems to dominate a lot of the forums and and whatnot on the internet, um, and of course the discussion on the dock. Um, people want to know well, why, you know, why do recreational anglers have to release larger fish and and you know why are commercial anglers allowed to keep them and and it really mm-hmm. goes back to the the allocation policy the federal allocation policy for halibut and currently it's set at um 85 15 where the commercial uh, sector gets 85 percent of the allocation and the recreational sector gets 15 percent of the allocation and, and to put that all into perspective uh, the there's roughly let's say uh, 300,000 recreational fishing licenses sold in the province every year. Uh, the DFO estimates that about 100,000 of those people try to catch a halibut, whereas, and those 100,000 people share 15% of the allocation. Um, there's less than, you know, 160 active commercial halibut licenses right now, but they get 85% of the allocation. And so really that's, um, conservation aside, it's it's really an allocation issue that our sector doesn't get, um, you know, really an equitable share of uh, the Canadian halibut catch, and um, you know, to so in times of low abundance, when the biomass is sort of at the low point of its cycle, which it's at right now, uh, we have to do things. We have to employ different management tools to stay within our allocation, and so by having a slot limit, it reduces the average size of the fish that are harvested mm-hmm. within our fishery and that keeps our catch number down and what it does is it provides opportunity for the most anglers it gives you know the most number you know the biggest bang for your buck i guess it's it's kind of like doing more with less and unfortunately we're in that situation but also too you know with a hundred thousand people trying to catch a halibut every year we're in the unfortunate position where we actually have to ration the, you know the small inequitable amount that we get so I hope that sort of answers your question, Mike. Yeah, and so I guess the next question is, and this is just an easy question: is has it? Do you think it's working? Do you think? Do you think that the conservation efforts by recreational anglers is actually helping the halibut stocks right now, or do you think that we're no further ahead and we're just being restricted? Well, I think it certainly, um, you know, definitely helps. It definitely helps our our sector. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it also helps the stocks in general. And if you look, 
you know, at the international level, um, Canada's uh, Canada's stocks, you know, seem to be doing a little bit better than the stocks in, say, Alaska. And uh, there's a number of reasons why. You know, of course, there's, you know, uh, what is it, almost 10 million pounds of bycatch in the Alaska pollock fishery of juvenile of juvenile halibut, and you know, they they catch as much in terms of bycatch, juvenile halibut bycatch, as Canada does in all of its fisheries, and and so that's sort of it, you know from our standpoint, that's it's sort of a wasteful practice. But because in Canada we you know take a more conservative approach, you know to how we manage our fishery and and recreational anglers play a big part in that by releasing those big females, we're actually seeing our stocks in Canada do better, um, and, and they seem to mm-hmm. rebound from the low part part, part of their cycle. Um, they seem to do better in Canada, so. Absolutely. I think anglers, recreational anglers in particular, really need to give themselves a pat on the back because they've gone the extra mile um, to, to, you know, to ensure the, the long-term sustainability of the halibut fishery. Awesome. Hey, hey, Mike, this is, this is actually another segment into another, another topic you know, I wanted to cover off, and, and that's uh, you know, to do with bycatch and yellow eye. But let's, uh, if you've got a couple more minutes, we're just going to take a break here and uh, hear from our sponsors and help pay some bills. So can you hang on the line for a couple more minutes for us? Yeah, no problem. Okay, thanks, Mike. This segment of the BC Outdoors podcast with Mike Mitchell is proudly brought to you by your Toyota BC dealers. All right, folks. Welcome, uh, welcome back after a, a quick break. We still got uh, Mike Kelly from Codfather's uh, Charters. He's also a BC Outdoors writer and a main board member for the SFAB. Uh, Mike, thanks for thanks for hanging on here. Um, you know, off air here, we're just quickly talking about some other things with halibut, and and clearly, clearly that two hundred pound halibut you had to release too. So, one of the things that you and I have talked about, you know, even on on our show, is when you've been on the show is is just certain using certain gear and certain in certain ways to release these fish right and then and then maybe after we talk a little about that we can get into another hot topic and that's uh that's yellow eye on the coast here so let, let's talk a bit more about halibut what kind of gear we should be using uh, certain hooks and and maybe some release techniques eh? sure sure yeah well you know of course with you know having slot size um sizes being institute sizes being instituted as a management tool in our fishery you know, of course, we encounter fish on a on a regular basis that we, you know, maybe they're over the slot size limit, or, um, you know, maybe we've already caught our limit for the day, and or maybe we don't want to keep any fish that day, and we just like to practice catch and release. And and this is a it's a really important consideration moving forward. And of course, you look at a lot of fisheries around the world. You know, the sturgeon fishery in the Fraser River would be a prime example. You know, it's a great fishery. It's a um, you know, a huge economic generator, but people don't keep a single fish. And, and so catch and release is an important factor in all our fisheries and halibut is no different. And so I think what, you know, there's a few sort of basic guidelines that apply to catch and release in, in just about every fishery. And, and, and I'd like to touch on a few of those. And I mean, the first one being that if you're going to keep the fish, uh, or if you're going to release the fish, it's best to keep it in the water and not remove it from the water. And, um, when it comes to large halibut, particularly, I mean, they, they're, they're very strong creatures and they not only can be somewhat dangerous to pull them out of the water, but we want to do things when we handle the fish to avoid hurting it or harming it because we want that fish to go back and, and spawn again the next year and provide us with some, some you know, babies to, to catch and, and to, you know, sort of make it into our fishery. And so one of the, the big things that, you know, anglers can do to avoid harming a large halibut is to not 
tail rope them. It's it's mm-hmm. by far one of the worst practices um, that you know that recreational anglers um, you know could ever do. And uh, of course, as a I was a long time federal fisheries observer. I worked on many of the commercial fleets um, in that capacity. And and one thing you know we we would assess halibut vigor before they were released. Uh, you know they would be assigned at more morta- you know 100 percent mortality if they were lifted by the tail. And the larger the fish, of course, the more you know the greater chances of harming that fish. And if you've ever lifted up a halibut that you were retaining and you know lifted it up by the tail, sometimes you can feel that you know, the spinal column actually cracked. And so with mm-hmm. large fish, when, when they're tail roped and lifted by their tail, uh, you, you're pretty much guaranteeing that that fish is not going to survive just because of that one action. So, you know, I think for anglers, the, the, the message to take away is, you know, when you get a large fish up to the side of the boat, you know, take some video of it, admire it, um, enjoy it, and, and, you know, pull the hooks out and let it swim away and, and ensuring mm-hmm. that that fish is going to be able to be able to reproduce and so so you know one other aspect is you know when it comes to catching and releasing these large fishes is the type of hooks that we use and uh, so you know i i tend to avoid using treble hooks when i'm fishing for halibut because i find they're you know more difficult to remove from a fish of course you're allowed to use barbed hooks when you're fishing for for bottom fish in bc but personally i like to bend the barbs down i find it easier to release those large fish so I tend to go barbless, even though that's not the requirement currently. And I tend to use a little bit bigger hook. So I'll use one large single um, J-hook versus, say, um, you know, a treble hook. Because I find that a single J-hook, especially if I bend the barb down on it, you know, I can get my gaff in underneath it and I can pull that hook out of the fish's mouth and, you know, watch it some way without harming it and, and leaving it in the water. So... Some people uh, like to use a circle hook, um, and, and circle hooks certainly are an effective tool to catching halibut. But if somebody who's on, you know, unhooked many, many uh, halibut, you know, as a commercial angler, probably tens of thousands of them with a circle hook, you know, there's a technique to it. And I think if anglers don't have that technique down, I find they can do more damage removing a circle hook than a, a straight J hook. And circle hooks tend to have a very large barb, so if the barb's not bent down. Um, and you you know you don't know the trick to get them off a circle hook. You can actually do more damage to the fish's mouth. So I, personally, I, I like to use one single large J hook in my jigs and uh, or in my bait rigs. And one other way that we're you know sort of dealing with uh, slot limits that we currently have is we tend to troll our fish. We try to stay away from rock piles where we may encounter things like yellow eye, but we tend to troll our fish and a little bit shallower water, say down to 200 feet at the most. But, you know, really in a lot of places in 100, 120, 90 feet, even some places as shallow as 50 feet and, um, you know, softer bottom, gravel, sand, mud, that sort of thing, areas where we know there's some halibut around. And, and we're trolling them with, you know, things like large coyote spoons, um, you know, X-Rap as an example, um, even an anchovy, you know, or a herring in a, in a teaser head, something like that. And we're covering ground. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to get a little smaller fish by doing so. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, obviously occasionally we get a real big one. But you're usually getting a little bit smaller fish that are within that slot limit. And so that's sort of, you know, reducing the number of encounters that we're having with the, the large oversized fish. And it's also reducing our encounters with yellow eye, which is now a species at risk. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's that, that segues right into to another to the, the other part we wanted to, to cover off here, too. Um Let's uh, let's hold on here, Mike. Let's uh, let's let our uh, sponsors have have a couple minutes here, and then we'll we'll come back after a second break here. If that's all right with you. 
Sounds good, Mike. I'm going to grab a coffee. This segment of the BC Outdoors podcast with Mike Mitchell is proudly brought to you by Yamaha. Are you ready to get out and conquer the water? Let Yamaha rev your heart. All right, folks, thanks for hanging in there after another break here. Uh, we're with Mike Kelly, Cod Fathers, Charters, BC Outdoors writer, and also a main board member for the SFAB. Mike, we were talking a little bit off air there, and we've kind of teased a little bit about Yellow Eye, and I think we can now get into Yellow Eye and, and, uh, and, and some of the issues that are going on up and down the coast with Yellow Eye and, and some solutions we have and, and, and ways to, to uh, hopefully solidify a future fishery for us with Yellow Eye down the road, right? Yeah, you bet, Mike. You know, um, I think... You know, everybody everybody knows it's no secret that you know recreational anglers are ultimately conservationists at heart, and you know I think we all recognize that without uh, sustainability in our fisheries, that we would have no fisheries, and uh, you know and it goes for all species, of course. And, and I think as parents too, we want to make sure that you know there's good, strong fisheries for our kids to participate in and our grandkids to participate in down the road. So we have that responsibility and. Recreational anglers, uh, you know, of course, take that very seriously, and uh, and it goes without saying when you have a species such as yellow eye, um, you know, that is, uh, you know, listed under the Species at Risk Act, um, that we of course have to do our part to make sure that you know that the the stock is sustainable in the long term, and and so when it comes to yellow eye, of course, they were listed by under uh, COSAWIC uh, and the Species Risk Act, and uh, and so. Because of that, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has a very serious mandate to uh, to take um, you know concerted efforts to ensure that, that you know that this species, the decline in this, the population of this species, um, doesn't uh, doesn't increase. And of course, right now, unfortunately, out, you know the outside yellow eye stock is um, is in the critical stages in, in terms of their population decline. And uh, and in BC, we have two. Um, two sort of distinct yellow eye stocks, and they're managed that way. And one is the outside yellow eye management area, which of course goes from Juan de Fuca Strait right up to the Alaska border. And then there's the inside yellow eye management area, which really goes from well, pretty close to Port Hardy right down to uh, Victoria area. So it's the uh, both both stocks are you know in trouble or not not doing as well as we'd like. And the outside management area, of course, is where we've now seen uh, zero retention on yellow eye uh, and Bacasio for that matter. So I think the real takeaway for, for recreational anglers is to do, you know, to, to adapt their fishing habits and to be more selective in how they harvest to, to do their part, to not, you know, not encounter yellow eye, but also to descend them, you know, to avoid the, the, um, consequences of barotrauma once they've encountered them, and so there's really four things that um, that yellow or that wreck anglers can do to, you know, to help rebuild the stock in in both the inside and outside management area. And so, you know, the first thing is is knowing where yellow eye are and what their habitat is, and avoiding that habitat. So, you know, you're going to see yellow eye typically from 98 to you know 100 to 700 feet in depth and, and many species of rockfish they stratify or their habitats stratify based on their depth so in the area I fish I, I tend not to really find a lot of yellow eye in less than 150 feet you know I, I tend to find them more down into the 200s but you know that varies a little bit by area and also knowing that their habitat is a rocky bottom area and so 
if you know an area is a rocky bottom area and it's, you know, say 200 to 700 feet deep, it's probably best to avoid that area when you're looking for halibut because you don't necessarily want to encounter, um, you know, yellow eye. And, and if you do, um, say, you know, where you are fishing an area and you do encounter yellow eye, well, you, of course, descend them and then, um, you know, move to a different area where, you know, where you're not as likely to encounter them. And, and so as anglers, we learn every time we go fishing, we get to know where, you know, what areas or what habitats are um, conducive to yellow eye or where you're more likely to encounter them. And, and you know, part of, you know, playing our role in, in, in helping their stock is by moving to a different area where we know we're not going to encounter them. So, so the second thing that we can do as, as recreational anglers is know how to identify a yellow-eye because in, in BC, of course, there's over 30 species of different species of rockfish, and many of them actually look quite similar. So when it comes to yellow-eye, you know, the other species that we encounter that look very similar are, are canary rockfish. There's mm-hmm. also vermilion rockfish, rose thorn rockfish. Uh, sometimes even copper rockfish will look similar to a yellow-eye. And if you're fishing really deep, you might even encounter a short raker rockfish. And so those are some of the, I mean, there's other species that, of course, look like yellow eye, but they're going to be found in different depth ranges. So that'd be fish such as uh, rough eye, Pacific Ocean perch, uh, reed eye, or dark, uh, blackmouth rockfish, species like that. But we mm-hmm. typically don't encounter them because they're a dip, different depth range. But for those species yeah. that do inhabit a similar depth range, you know, if species ID is, is a big portion of that. And and so one of the, probably the two main ones or three main ones that, you know, get confused for, for yellow eye are going to be rose thorn rockfish, canary rockfish, and vermilion rockfish. And so um, all three of those stocks, um, you know, currently are in, you know, better shape than, uh, than yellow eye. So, so I guess, again, uh, the second thing that, you know, we can do as anglers is, is our species identification, making sure that we're identifying those, those species correctly. And the third mm-hmm. thing that we can do um, is releasing them. And so we've got some pretty amazing new technology that, uh, that was really developed down in the United States, um, to deal with some of their rockfish issues and they're called descending devices and they can be a really, really simple thing. You know, there's one called a, a Shelton descender, which is a, is really just a bent wire. You put a weight on it and you put it through the fish's mouth and you lower it down to depth and you, you give it a pull and off the fish comes. But when yellow eye or any rockfish for that matter are caught, they get barrel trauma and barrel trauma is kind of like a scuba diver getting the bends. And what happens is, is the nitrogen in their blood comes out of solution. It really boils out of their solution because of the change in pressure. And so by using a descending device, you're able to return that fish to the depth or close to the depth that it was caught. And some of the studies coming out of the United States, uh, it's absolutely amazing work, but you're finding that it's up to 83% survival rate for yellow eye when returned, um, quickly after being caught and uh, not only are they surviving but they're also able to reproduce some of the some of the research is shown so that's a really positive thing for us because that's a means for us to prosecute some of our other fisheries but still not have um, you know as big an impact on yellow eyes we've had in previous years so and you know in terms of descending devices I mean you could use an upside down milk carton with some weights on it uh, but there's kind of two main ones that are are being used these days. There's the Shelton Descender. Uh, Pacific Nut and Twine actually has their own version of, of a descending device. It's a great, great one. It's very cheap, inexpensive, and works excellent. And then there's also more mm-hmm. expensive ones like the Sequelizer, uh, which we tend to use often. And they're, um, they come in two different varieties. 
One is for releasing fish at 50, 100, and 150 feet. And then the other version releases fish at 100, 200, and 300 feet. And so the big thing is to... Um, is to ensure that we're trying to release the fish as quickly as possible once it's caught. So within two minutes, you want to get the thing hooked up and send it back down. And the other thing that we want to do is try to release the fish at two-thirds of the depth that it was caught. And uh, okay. and so that's very important. So, you know, not to take up too much time, but the, the, um, the last thing that we can do is report our catch and report it accurately. So that's where you know, identify an identification comes in, into play so that we're ensuring that we're reporting our catch, that we're reporting the right species. So it's important that, um, you know, that we're providing information uh, to the department. So because this aids in, in, you know, different things like biological monitoring and, there, and, and catch reporting is critical for ongoing accurate stock assessment. So, you know, having good data is uh, is key to managing our fisheries and ensuring that not only is it sustainable, but also to provide um, opportunity, you know, and uh, we know that, you know, certain stocks are doing good and, um, you know, everybody's playing their part. Often it can mean uh, increased limits for us and, and more opportunity. And so there's one more one more thing that I think anglers should be aware of that sort of came about this year and it was in response to yellow eye, of course, this was the first season that we um, gone to zero retention of yellow eye and Bocasio for conservation concerns. But uh, department, uh, on the advice of the Sport Fish Advisory Board, the SFAB, has now uh, adopted an aggregate management approach when dealing with yellow eye. And you know, if you look at the Fisheries Act, rockfish for the recreational fishery is just listed as rockfish and yellow eye, just basically two listings. But if you look at the Fisheries Act as it pertains to the commercial sector, there's every single species of rockfish that's commercially harvested is listed out. Mm-hmm. And the commercial commercial yeah. fisheries have quotas for each one of those species. So until now, you know, recreational anglers have just been managed under rockfish. And yellow eye was the only one that was pulled out of that. But now we're actually, we were able to, you know, suggest and recommend to the department that they adopt an aggregate management approach. And we saw in many outside waters, say West Coast Vancouver Island as an example, where last year, anglers were only allowed two rockfish per person per day. This year, it's actually gone up to three rockfish per person per day. But the mm-hmm. aggregate, there's a conservation aggregate built into that for, you know, quillback and China and tiger rockfish, where only one of your three rockfish can be from that aggregate. So moving forward, you know, we're, we're in a position where if there's species, rockfish species that are incredibly abundant, say yellow tail rockfish or say black rockfish are abundant in your area or canary rockfish or copper rockfish, for example, you know, any rockfish species, um, we could see increased limits, um, you know, to, to take advantage of the, the abundance of some of those, those species whose population are, are very healthy. And so an example of that, you know, if we go across the border down into Washington state in some places there you can retain uh, up to seven rockfish, but you know, maybe only five of those rockfish could be black rockfish mm-hmm. and only one of those rockfish could be a canary or so it's, it's a more finite way to manage rockfish, provide opportunity for those species that are plentiful, but provide protection for those species that, that need it. So. Awesome. No, it's, it, it is going to be an interesting, uh, few years coming ahead of us here with with the way things are changing in our you know the, the fisheries are constantly evolving so that's going to be a big thing right especially with the 
different different uh, limits on Chinook in certain areas now with this and of course with our ongoing halibut quota battle there seems to be always something going on but you know what overall we are um, we are still able to get out there and fish we're still able to go out and you know introduce new people to fisheries and we are going to have lots of uh, <laughs> lots and lots of uh, lots of fun going forward fishing, right? So that that's the big thing. I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, and some people may take some messaging as as being negative, but really, in the overall thing, there's still lots of opportunities up and down the coast for us. Absolutely, yeah, you got that right, yeah. Mike. And and again, it's trying yeah. to find that balance between you know opportunity and conservation, and uh, of course, you know, rec anglers and the sport fish advisory board and and groups like that. They're they're striving to try to find that balance where we can all stay on the water we can all enjoy our favorite pastime and uh, but still you know play our role in conservation no it's been great hey mike uh just a quick plug here for you um what uh what's going on here with your website and stuff let's get a plug if people want to come out and fish with you how can they get a hold of you yeah, of course, you can check out our website at uh, www.codfathercharters.com. And uh, we're getting, getting pretty booked up for the season, but we still have uh, you know a fair bit of room scattered throughout the summer. So if anglers want to come up, uh, look us up on the web and give us a show. So. Awesome. And then, of course, too, you want to check out our YouTube page. You can see Mike in previous episodes of BC Outdoors. We've got some learning with the pros tips from Mike's, Mike as well. And I believe, Mike, we're going to be up in your neck of woods filming with you uh, late July uh, 25th, 26th, 27th. So if you happen to be up in Port Hardy, folks, and you see the big BC Outdoors floating tackle store, we like to call it, come by, say hi, and and uh, and we'll give you some tips where you're at and, and fill you in. But uh, thanks again, Mike, for being on the show. Um, wealth of knowledge. I think we probably could have gone another probably – three or four hours the way you like to talk and, and all the information you got, right? So I want to thank you for taking, you know, you're a busy guy too. So I thank you for taking time uh, out of your, out of your day. And I'm, uh, I can't wait to see you again, buddy. It's going to be a, a fun trip this year for sure. Yeah, always a pleasure, Mike. We'll look forward to seeing you when you get up here and uh, I'll uh, see if I can outfish you again. So. Yeah, that's not going to happen. All right, man. Take care. We'll <laughs> hey, talk buddy. soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more BC Outdoors podcasts. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram for upcoming television and podcast schedules. This podcast produced and engineered by Kirk Gilchrist.